We have made it to the end of April and the year 2023, which is kind of insane. It's been an incredible year so far in life of our church, an incredible month in life of our church. Uh, but before we jump in today, I want to give you a reminder of a couple things coming up today and this week. First off, tonight is a very special event in our church called Inspire. Uh, we're going to be having an event that we do about twice a year where all of our volunteers are invited to come in any capacity. If you serve in any capacity, I want you to come be part of Inspire, um, which is something that we put together just to love on you guys. We do a lot here at Journey. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you caught on to that. Um, but we are a busy church, not only in this building, but in our community, in our world, around our nation. And it takes a lot of people to pull that off, a lot of sacrificial time and a lot of resources. And so we understand that. And so we have an event that we put together called Inspire. We just want to pour into you guys, live on you guys. There'll be a message tonight from Pastor Christian. There'll be some great worship. And then after, there'll be some food and some amazing Jesus-loving competition uh, between ministries. We're going to try to keep it, you know, Jesus-centered. But I know some people are competitive in this room, perhaps even our senior pastors. So it, it could get a little could get a little crazy, but you should make time to be there. It'll be a really awesome time in our church. And then Wednesday uh, is First Wednesday Prayer. So we've been doing this thing since the beginning of the year. Every Wednesday, the first Wednesday of the year, we get together and we pray. So if you've been with us, we are a praying church. We love to have seasons of time where we will have 10 or 21 days of prayer. where We come together at 6 in the morning and we pray, which is amazing. One of the first things I went to was that event. Um, but we've been doing these Wednesday nights of prayer where we ask families to come and just be here to meet with the Lord. We have student stuff that takes place on the other side of the building, their own environments where they get to learn and be poured into because that's when their normal rhythm is for student night here. Um, and then in this room, we get with the adults and we just have a great time of prayer. And so if you've never been a part of that, I want to encourage you, uh, make time because you will not regret it. It's one of the best things you can do. I absolutely love any time we do a prayer gathering here. Um, it, it's one of the best things in the world. And I believe this one will be a little bit more worship night focus kind of little right here. Yeah, like just like this. All right. So uh, if you've never been a part of that, it's going to be a really good time. Make plans. Join us. Um, but to jump in today, I, uh, this earliest month, April, what day is it? 30th, April 8th, I had the honor of celebrating seven years of marriage to my wife, Hannah. I know. I know. Impressive. I got a book coming out next month. You two can make it seven years <laughs> in marriage. Um, and before she was my wife, she was my girlfriend. Before she was my girlfriend, she was my best friend. In fact, our story is really weird because before we dated, we really thought of each other as like spiritual siblings, like little bro and big sis. Sounds weird, felt weird, is still weird, but now we're married and it's cool. But in order for me to make the jump from best friend to girlfriend, I had to go before the father and I had to ask the blessing to pursue Hannah in a dating relationship. And at the time, um, my now father-in-law, praise the Lord, uh, was not only the father of the girl I wanted to date, but he was also my pastor. He was also my boss. Yeah. And I was an intern. So it was a really good, I was seeking out to date the princess of the church. Not that she acted that way, but you are a princess. You're a queen now. I love you. Um, <laughs> But I had to go and I had to ask traditionally, sit down with him and his wife and kind of over an hour we talked about my intentions, what I wanted uh, to accomplish in dating and why I wanted to pursue Hannah, all those good things. It went really well. He only threatened me one time. And uh, at the end of it, I got the yes, got the green light. I was super excited about it. And he offered me something out of that conversation uh, to join him every Wednesday at 7 a.m. in a small group that he led that he would do as a, just a natural practice of his life as a pastor. We believe that we have to live in spiritual community. And so uh, 
um, he would take four to five men for 12 to 18 months, just walk with them, disciple them, and then he would kind of cycle them out with um, a different group of guys. So he invited me into that group on Wednesdays at 7 a.m., Big honor. I was really appreciative. I told him, hey, man, thanks. I'll check my schedule. I'm 19 years old at the time, so, you know, I got it going on. Um, so I go to my mentor, and I tell him the good news, and he's like, man, kudos to you. Praise the Lord. Can't wait. Excited. And he said, but I want, you, I want to make sure you know something. Um, you need to go to that small group. You know that, right? I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? He's like, you cannot not go to that small group. You would be a fool not to go to that small group. And I was like, well, I'm, gonna, I'm planning on going, but, you know, why would I need to go? And he helped me understand that when the boss man, the father, invites you into something um, that is a great opportunity, very personal, uh, the invitation is more of an expectation. <laughs> and I would be a fool not to take him up on that offer. And I said, I got it. And I showed up as many Wednesdays as I could, and it was honestly an incredible time, and honestly, it paid off. Now we have three children, so praise the Lord. <laughs> but I talk about that because that was my experience of having an invitation that really was more than just a recommendation. It was something that should have been an expectation. It was a great opportunity, and I would have been a fool not to take him up on the offer. And today, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that's going to be detailing what happens when a people is given a great invitation— but instead of seeing the invitation as an expectation or as an honor, they see it as more of a recommendation, and they end up not taking it up on the king. We're in a series called King Jesus. This is the third week now that we have been in this series talking about the, the ministry and the rule and reign of Jesus. What does it mean for him to be king over all, us in our lives? And right now, we're going to be in Matthew 22, covering 22 verses, a parable and a separate account that pairs really well with that parable to kind of learn what exactly is the king inviting us into? What are the kind of people that get invited into what he's calling us to? And why do people not always take him up on the offer, if ever? So we're going to be digging in on some really interesting, amazing things. If you have a Bible with you, don't worry. Everything I read will be on the screen for you. Uh, but if you have it, you can flip it open, open to Matthew 22. And the way that we're going to tackle this passage is in three different parts. I call them parts or scenes, okay? So we're going to have them broken up in three different parts in that way. We'll talk about them, and we're going to learn some incredible things. So verses 1 through 7, the first part is called the King's Invitation. Let's see what Jesus is doing. He says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servant to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers, burned and burned their city. So what's going on here in this parable? Jesus is actually telling the third parable now that's giving a similar message than the other two he just gave. Last week, Pastor Christian taught us two other parables, the parable of the two sons and of the tenants, which was a parable aimed at the Jewish leaders that he's talking to right now, trying to tell them what God is going to do in response to what they have done. The parable snapshot I would give you here of this part of the parable is this. This part of the parable is describing the people of God's history of rejection and rebellion. These first seven verses are pointing to the history of Israel and the tendency that they had to constantly reject and rebel the Lord. Now, what you need to know about today is as we walk through this parable and this account, what we can see about them then is what we can see in us today. 
Okay, so we're going to learn some things about even ourselves and how they have responded to God. There's a lot to apply to our own lives today. So in these seven verses, I want you to see two things in this scene of the king's invitation. And the first one is this, the significance of the invite. The significance of the invite. Verse 2. So the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. I believe the entire weight of the parable hinges on this verse right here. Because Jesus is using a ridiculous metaphor to drive home the point that he wants the Pharisees to understand. It's like he's saying, I want to make this painfully clear to you, so get this story. A wedding banquet in the first century was not like our wedding banquets today. Our weddings today are one day, their ceremony, reception, they cost way too much money, a ton more planning go into it, you get bridezillas out of it, it's insane. Back in the first century, man, it wouldn't have held a candle to what they do. Usually it would last an entire week to have a wedding banquet in the first century, just a normal wedding banquet. Tons of food, lots of drinks, great time. It would be the highlight of social life. But Jesus takes this and he gets the highest expression when he says, it's not only a wedding banquet, it's one that a king is putting on for his son. So you could have made this more of a bigger event in history. This would have been a massive deal. It wouldn't have just been a week long, but several weeks. It would have been a feast upon feast, the best drink in the land, no limit to the resources the king could ask for. He would have guests stay with him the whole time. He would up your social status. If you got an invite to this thing, you were talking about it. And they knew that. They understood what Jesus was communicating, that this was an event that was a high honor and no one in their right mind would have ever rejected. And that's exactly Jesus' point here. He wants them to know that they have rejected and dismissed the greatest privilege and gift imaginable, which is a relationship with the creator of the universe, to be his people, to be in his kingdom, to walk in his ways, to have his peace and joy and comfort, security, provision, to know him. He's saying, just like no one in their right mind would reject this invitation, no one in their right mind reject to know the Lord and to be in his kingdom. If you've been reading with us this year in our Bible reading plan, you might have noticed now just how the people of Israel really act. This year is a come and follow year. And so January 1, we started to read the Bible all together as a church, trying to, to get through it one book at a time, starting in the Old Testament, our way through it. We're currently in Chronicles, learning a lot about genealogies, but praise the Lord, they put some Psalms in there for us to have some can I get an amen? Okay. So we get some goodness there. But we are working through this Bible reading plan. And just time and time again, if you haven't noticed, the people of Israel are often disappointing. I mean, just from day one, it is just exhausting. We just see time and time again how God is so good to them and loving to them, how he does these amazing, mighty acts and works. And five minutes later, they're off chasing another God or making a golden calf or doing some crazy sin. And we're just like, these, if you've never read the Bible before, the first time you read through it, the honest reaction is, these people are idiots. <laughs> they are just utter fools. Like, what's wrong with them? If I had their life, man, I'm telling you right now, it would be different for me. But the sad thing is, I'm pretty sure that if they had an account of yours and mine's life today, in our context, they could say the very same things. They would say, wait a second, you don't need a temple? Wait a second, you don't need a priest to come before God? Wait a second, I'm going to go raid old McDonald's farm and kill a cow so I can have my sins forgiven? 
I can, I can just say a prayer. I have the Holy Spirit of God in me now. I have access to the throne at any moment. You're telling me these people got all that going on for them right now, and they're acting that way? It goes two ways. Because the point what we see here is that the story of the Bible end of life is the king of creation pursuing a people who continually reject him. It's just a sad story of life. The people of God really haven't changed much. God's just done some amazing things for us. But time and time again, we just see that we fail and we reject God. Maybe one of the saddest passages in Scripture is found in the Gospel of John. In Jesus' ministry, before he gets started, it kind of gives a summary statement. It says this in John 1.11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's just painful. If you know anything about the, the history of the Israelites, God promised them a savior, a Messiah, a king who would come and bring the promised kingdom that would secure their lives forever, that would be the dream that they could ever have of like the best possible scenario of living with the Lord, knowing him, walking with him. And this the Messiah would be the guy to usher in that kingdom. Jesus is that guy. He came to his people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, and they reject him. They don't want him. It's just heartbreaking. And we see that play out time and time again. Maybe the better expression would be in Isaiah 65. This is God speaking in verse 2. He says this, I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. You just hear the heart of our God right now that he's holding out his hands, inviting us in, calling us in, and we'd rather go and follow things that aren't good for us, that are hurtful to us. And he's saying, I know how life is intended to be lived. I know what is good for you and not good for you. Don't chase those things. They're not good. They don't lead to what you think they lead to. Come to me. He stand their hands out to a rebellious people. But praise the Lord that he's a king that pursues. In the, in the parable, it's actually sad. There's three times he invites the people. The first one, you miss it because it says that he goes to remind those who have been invited. So they got one invitation. For a king to have to remind anyone is ridiculous enough. But he goes on, he reminds them, they reject him, right? They don't want anything to do with it. So then he goes out the third time, and this is the one that's the saddest part. He goes and tells them, hey, just let them know that dinner's ready. I got my cattle ready. I got some cows butchered. Like, you, do, you don't want to miss what I got prepared for you. Come to the wedding banquet. And they don't wanna, they want anything to do with it. Like, he's saying, don't miss out on what I have for you. Why do we do that? The great Christian thinker and theologian, we quoted him last week, C.S. Lewis, so I decided I'm going to quote him this week. He says it this way, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around or about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. One of the lies that we buy into is that God ultimately won't satisfy us, if we're honest. That's why we do what we do. That's why we spend the days the way that we spend them. That's why we invest in the things we invest in over the Lord sometimes. Not that they're always bad, but we just, in our hearts of hearts, would say those things don't seem like they're going to actually deliver. So we think that our desires are too strong, but in reality, they're too weak. We're playing in the mud when God is offering us something that is unimaginably amazing. And I just wonder if sometimes if we realize what we've been invited into each and every day, this relationship with this king that provides pleasure and hope and peace and comfort at all times. So how do the guests respond? 
This is the invitation, the king invitation. Then how did they respond? The second thing I want you to see is the response of the guests in verses three through six. He says, he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So then he goes and he sends them out another invitation. They pay no attention. They go off to his field. They go off to his business. The rest of them, they seize, mistreat, and kill those servants. So really three things that we see the guests respond with. First off is they just, they just didn't want to come. If it says that they refused to come, literally could say that they willed against it. They did not have the desire to come. And if we're just honest, sometimes that's us. Man, listen, sometimes that's me. I know the stuff about human beings because I see it in my own life, not as just a Christian, as a pastor, just as a human being. Man, sometimes I don't want the things of God. I don't want to do what he's called me to do. I'd rather do other stuff. I want to go watch the draft and learn about men that I've never heard of that got hyphenated names that I can't pronounce. Like, I'd rather do that than go read my Bible sometimes. I'm just being honest. The other reason why is they didn't care. It says that they didn't pay attention to the invitation. That literally could be translated, they did not care which would have been unthinkable with the opportunity yet at hand, that they would be able to come to this king's wedding banquet and they would just say, I don't care. They'd rather go on to their business or their field, which represents their own self-interest and pursuits. They just got stuff going on. Maybe you wouldn't say today you don't care about God or what he's got going on in his kingdom. You would just say, I'm just busy. They just got a lot of stuff going on, a lot of sports, a lot of things going on with the kids, a lot of trips coming up. I just, I'm just busy. It's not that I don't care. I do care. I just, I'm just busy. The third reason is because they hated the message. They take the servants. They mistreat them. They beat them. They kill them. Really, this, isn't, this is pointing to what had happened to the Old Testament prophets. It's foreshadowing what would happen to the New Testament prophets and people of God. The Old Testament prophets would come with a, a message of judgment, trying to call the people back to the Lord. They'd usually have a r- pretty rough life because of those things. And in the New Testament, we see John the Baptist be martyred for the faith because he's a New Testament prophet. Jesus would be crucified. And then later on, his apostles would be martyred. They would die for the faith. And to us today as Christians, we're persecuted because of the message of the gospel. At the end of the day, when people don't care, they don't want to hear it, they also just don't like it. And again, if we're just being honest, I don't think we always like the message. I sit under the preaching of our senior pastor every week, and it's incredible stuff, right? But you would be lying if, he, if you said everything he ever said was something that you wanted to hear. Love him. <laughs> I don't leave every Sunday thinking like, I just feel great. Sometimes I leave annoyed. I'm like, I know I need to do that. And he just totally just, mm. Right? If we're just honest, like there's sometimes we don't like the conviction that comes with the message. We don't want to be told that we're sinful. We need to get our lives together. We don't, want to, we don't want to change. We hate the message. You take it all together, what you really see in the, in the heart of the people of God is this, that we are often more concerned about building our kingdom rather than God's. The kingdom just doesn't sound as, as exciting as our own life and what we got going on. Just more often than not, we'd rather invest in things we want to invest in than anything else. The irony here is that many Christians want to keep and protect their life, but the way they're living is actually like working against them according to what Jesus taught. What do you mean by that? Look at Matthew 16. Jesus said to disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever is going to call me king in their life, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save or keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. See, Jesus says it's backwards. It's not by focusing on your life that you actually keep your life, that you improve your life, that you experience the life I came to give you abundantly. The point here is the best thing we can do for ourselves is not prioritize our lives, but the kingdom. It doesn't make any sense. 
It doesn't make any sense, but he said, if you lose your life, you'll find it. If you try to keep your life, you'll lose it. The song we just sang about not being disappointed, not being let down by God, I believe this with my whole heart, that if you were to give your life up for the kingdom of God, you get to the end of your life, you look back, and you would have no regrets. But if you did the opposite, if you pursued every avenue imaginable, if you just went as hard as you can in life towards your dreams and ambitions, and you totally blew up the kingdom or just kind of kept it to the side there, you would get to the end of your life, and you would say, man, I missed it. It didn't pan out the way I wanted it. It wasn't as fulfilling as I thought it was. It really wasn't worth the time. I believe Jesus knows what he's talking about here. And I don't think it means that we just have to give up all the things that we like to do. We have to give up all of our interests. But I do believe that being under King Jesus means that we bring our lives in alignment and conformity with his kingdom. And we leverage everything he gives us for that purpose. And in that, even though it seems like loss, is actually infinite gain. And the best life imaginable. I love it because God often reasons this way in the Bible. It's not that it's about us, but he's always like, if you want to do what's good for you, follow me. And we're like, that sounds good. I'm going to do this instead. Like, it's so great that he's the kind of God that doesn't see us as just like slaves, but he also wants us to be blessed and are following and obeying him. And we just have to conquer the lie that it's not going to be what we think it's going to be. That it actually will be worth it. The reality is there will always be a reason to reject the call and invitation of Jesus. There will always be an inconvenience. There's always an inconvenience. You have kids, always got an inconvenience. You're a student, always an inconvenience. There's always something. Empty nester, my lawn needs to be mowed. I mean, there's just always something. Yard work to be done. The truth is daily obedience to Jesus is always going to be inconvenient to our everyday lives. Get up early in the morning, read your Bible, that's inconvenient. Come to church every single week. That kind of feels inconvenient sometimes. Serving feels inconvenient. Giving, come on now. Going on a mission trip, taking PTO to go across the, the globe feels inconvenient. But if you meet those people that do those things, there seems to be something different about them. And they don't have any regret in what they're doing. And then all of a sudden they get this bug that they just want to do more and more and more and more. They just want to give more of their time and their resources in their life. And they just are almost annoying with how joyful they are. <laughs> you ever met them? It's almost like they, they took Jesus at his word that if you give up your life, you'll actually find it. They're like, hey, I think it works. It's the king's invitation. It's the way to the invite, the response of the guests. The question is, are you living your life in such a way that you're trying to keep it or lose it? If Jesus is king in your life, there's only one way to live it. The second scene that I want to talk about today is the change of plans, verses 8 through 14. We see the invitation. We see the guest response. Now, let's look at what he does in response to these things. Matthew 22, 8 through 14, it says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet's ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Really interesting statement we'll talk about in a second. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how'd you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Here's a parable snapshot of this section of the parable. This is describing God's response to his people's rejection by inviting the rest of the world. So this is just the, the story of the Bible we see happen. If you follow the Old Testament story, if you continue to read your Bible, and you'll see eventually God is going to get to a point where he's like, all right, I've had enough. I'm going to 
ignore and turn from you people, the Israelites. I'm going to focus on the rest of the world. I'm going to give them the kingdom. I'm going to give it to the Gentiles. Two groups in the Bible are often talked about, the Jews and Gentiles. Jews are the Israelites, the people that God first chose to be his people. The Gentiles is all the rest. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So probably a lot of us in this room would fall into that category. And Jesus is saying, this section of the parable is the response of God to the rebellion and rejection of his people. It's the inclusion of everyone else. So there's two things I want to look at is the people that are now invited to this banquet. Who are these people? The first group that we're going to look at is the deserving. I love what the king says here is that, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So he goes and he says, invite anyone. Get as, all the people you can, the bad as well as the good. Like fill that thing up with anyone who's just willing to respond to the invitation. Now we know the invited here is referring to the, the Israelites, the Jews. But my question is, what made them undeserving? What made them undeserving here? Was it lack of accomplishments? Was it prestige, morality, riches? Like, did it not bring some to the table? What was it that made them undeserving of this invitation? And here's all it is. Here's the simple answer. The guests were undeserving because they failed to respond to the gracious invitation of the king. That's it. I'm sure all the king's guests in the parable had all these incredible things where the greatest people in the world, but he said, they don't deserve to come to my wedding banquet. Why? Because they didn't respond. They didn't receive the invitation. What this points to is the reality of the gospel that really should humble us of who is and who isn't deserving. What separates you and me from the world is not that we are better than other people. That might be a newsflash of some people in the room. You are not better than anybody. As a Christian, what separates you and me from the room and the world is not that we are better, not that we do better or are smarter or stronger. I'm definitely not. There are two groups of people in the world. There are sinners who've received grace and sinners who need grace. That's it. Like an arrogant Christian is an oxymoron. A self-righteous Christian is an oxymoron. I don't even know how that makes sense because the story of the gospel is God saving a people who could not help themselves, who brought nothing to the table except for sin and the need to be saved. That's it. There is no one excluded from the call of the gospel. That's why I love this part of the parable because he says, go find anybody. The the ground of the cross is level. There's no one that's going to be left out on the invitation of the gospel. Everyone qualifies an invite, which is so sad because... Most of our nation and world think of the church very differently. They see us as being fr- pretty judgmental and self-righteous. But look how Paul describes the church in 1 Corinthians 6. He says this, this is 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, pause. You hear that, and if you aren't a Christian today, you're like, that's exactly what I expect to hear from a church. You aren't allowed in. You're bad. You can't be with us. Right? To be a Christian, you got to be a good person. So some people think, I can't come to a church because I'm not welcome because I got stuff in my past that they would never let me in through the doors. But then look at what Paul says in verse 11. And such were some of you. This is to a church. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of your God. You are filled with the room right now, surrounded by people that are utterly broken and were just saved by grace. 
we got nothing to boast of except for that. Paul's writing to a church here and all these things. And he's not trying to say this is an exhaustive list, list of sins. That's not his point. His point is that there's people that come from every shape and form of sin and brokenness and the family of God. And it's a beautiful thing. It's not to our shame, but to the praise of his glorious grace. That people, the less likely, the undeserving, would actually be invited in. Because really the key to being deserving is realizing how very much you are not deserving. Of how undeserving you are. I got a guy back home, our home church, his name's Alex. I think Alex is like in his 40s or 50s, it's been a minute. He's a father, I think, of four now, um, and he's a great guy. He's got a, a crazy story. He got nine years old. Um, his family was divorced, but he also got addicted to drugs at nine years old and ended up being incarcerated in jail eventually as an adult man, met a Christian, got saved, um, got out of jail, still struggled with drugs and getting out of that difficulty, eventually got clean and sober, and now he's living his life. He's invested in the church. He's, he's helping. He's like a biblical counselor now at the church of people who come from that kind of background. Just a sweet man. And what I love about Alex is that you may not see Alex on a Sunday, but you will hear Alex on a Sunday. If you go to church with Alex, you won't know that he's there until the worship starts, and all of a sudden, you'll hear a sound. You'll hear clapping, and you'll hear hooting and hollering, and there's one dude in the room, and everyone's looking around like, what is going on with this guy? And it's funny, because I love it now. You know, like you hear it, and you're just like, there's Alex. Oh, we're thinking about freedom again. We're thinking about forgiveness. There's Alex. You look over there at Alex, and he's surrounded by people that just look really irritated. It's like we're, it's, it's sad. He, this guy is in tears every Sunday. You think he just got saved yesterday. He was saved for a minute now, but every time that man worships, he's brought to the beginning. And it's sad to see people who say they love Jesus, and I believe they love Jesus, and they've been forgiven, but they seem irritated at someone rejoicing over the salvation of their own soul and what I see in Alex is something in the man I crave in my own life. What makes him different from many people is that he never recovered from the gospel. Like he got saved and he knows that I belong in verses 9 through 10. I'm the unrighteous that shouldn't inherit the kingdom of God. I don't deserve any of these things. But here I am now standing justified, washed, cleansed by Jesus. And he's going to let everyone know in the room every Sunday he shows up. And man, that's a challenge to me. I got to pray for God to reignite my soul, to remind me what it means to be saved, of where I came from. That's all of our stories. If you're a Christian in this room, you are in verses 9 through 10. And we get to boast in that and celebrate that and say, hey, anybody qualifies for an invite. Brian, I think of you as a guy who loves to use your story to help people. Pastor Ryan is one of the best people I know that he almost, it's like he, he finds someone who's like broken, he's got some issues in their life, and he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he's like, Let's, let's, show, let's show scars. You know what I mean? And he'll sit down. He'll talk to them. And he'll share his own story about how Jesus saved their life. And all of a sudden, they're both crying. He gets saved. It's like, that's what you do with your story. When you realize you're a mess and you come from a background that's broken, but you've been saved by grace, it becomes a weapon for the cause of Christ. And the people that are most in tune with that are some of the most powerful Christians. And that's who the deserving are. The key to being deserving is realizing how undeserving you are. It's just receiving invitation. We read earlier, John 1, 11, that Jesus was rejected by his own people. And the very next verse, though, look what it says. He says, he came to those that were his, but they did not receive him. But that it says in verse 12, yet all who did receive him, all that just received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
The deserving are just those people that respond to an invitation. That's it. They just receive it. And they experience this life change that we talk about. That's what the deserving are. There's another group of people, though. Same group of people, they're called something different that I want to look at, and that's called the chosen. The chosen, verses 11 through 14. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. So he asked him, how'd you get in here without your wedding clothes? The man didn't have an answer. So the king told his attendants, throw him out. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Honestly, when I first read this passage, I was almost taken back when I saw the ending of the parable. I just wasn't expecting it. I just didn't think it was going to be where Jesus was going to like land that plane. But here he is. He, he ends the parable in such a kind of a weird way where at first when I read it, I thought, is this teaching that people are going to like sneak into heaven? Like we're going to get through the pearly gates and all of a sudden someone's going to be like, oh, yeah, that guy. No, no, no. He, he, that guy needs to get thrown out. Like, is that what this is representing here? That someone can like accidentally get through and then find out that they're not supposed to be there? Because I just got a new fear, <laughs> if that's true. <laughs> like, you're going to find me being dragged up by like the Archangel Michael and be like, oh, no. Oh, man. So I got worried for a second. I was like, he's not, he's not teaching that, right? And I actually don't think he is. I think he's teaching what will not happen at the end because of verse 14. For what he says about many invited, few are chosen. What Jesus is talking and teaching here is the doctrine of election. We talked about that a few months ago in January in our Thrive series. Out of John 15, Pastor Christian, he unpacked this doctrine of election. When Jesus said that you did not choose me, I chose you. He said there is a sovereign decree of God extending his grace to a people that would live unto him and to the praise of his glorious grace. We see that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. Very great, powerful passage about those who have been saved. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that no one's going to actually be in heaven or get into heaven because of this truth. When it says many are invited, it's what theologians would refer to as the general call of salvation. This idea that everyone's going to get a chance to hear the gospel, or at least that's the hope. Like we want everyone as much as we can to know the hope of Jesus. Later on in the end of May, we're going to kick off a series in Matthew 24 through 25, all about the end times. And in the middle of that series in Matthew 25, Jesus will say that in order for the end to come, the gospel has to reach the ends of the earth. It's got to go out to every corner until the end will actually come because he wants everyone to hear the gospel. But then the second part of the verse says, few are chosen is what theologians would call a, the, the, call, the effectual call of salvation. Meaning this, that there's going to be some people that hear the, the call of salvation and they're going to respond to it. They've been elect in that way, chosen, and they'll respond to salvation, which means this, no one will actually make it to heaven. Those whom God has elected will be saved and those who aren't saved will have rejected the call to be. You say, that doesn't seem to make any sense. That seems confusing. It is, but it's just kind of one of those things that the Bible teaches pretty explicitly, that there is a total sovereignty of God in giving salvation and the full responsibility of man in receiving salvation. How those two things interact and make sense is something theologians have argued about and talked about for thousands of years, and none of them have gotten close. We know it's a thing. We don't know how it works. Just part of the, all the other things in Christianity that are paradoxical, like Jesus being 100% man and 100% God, or the fact that we have a, a book written by man and God, or a Trinitarian God with three different persons, all equally God. Like, that doesn't make sense, but we just, we know it's a thing. This is just one of those other things that we see in the Bible. And unfortunately, I think people wrongfully jettison one of these things out of their understanding of, of the Bible or of God because they don't seem to understand how to reconcile it, even though the Bible seems to do a good job of holding them in tension. 
And my heart breaks because I think there's, there's, some, there's some gold in these understandings and these doctrines that actually help us fulfill the mission God has called us to live out. So I want to give you four outworkings of what election should have in our lives. I'm not going to get the nitty-gritty of like, what does it mean? How does it work out? These are just four things that should be present in our life if we understand them properly. And I'll give them to you all on one slide. Comfort, certainty, courage, and confidence. Comfort. What we should know by this, because it's true, is that it doesn't depend on us. Praise the Lord. We don't have the back-breaking, soul-breaking responsibility of being good enough to make sure God accomplishes his mission. It doesn't depend on you and me. He's not going to leave it up to human beings to make sure his plans come to fruition. You say, why not? Have you read the Bible? We've been talking about it. People are terrible. They fail all the time. And it, praise the Lord, it doesn't depend on us. Instead, it depends on God. We have certainty that God will save his people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is going to save his people and no one's going to stop him. No matter how much sin or how many people hate the message of the gospel, no matter how, how whatever hindrances we run into, the gospel is going to reach the ends of the earth and he's going to save his people. And because of that, he's able to save anyone at any time. So the person that you can't even imagine being a Christian, I want you to know, you should be praying for them because God is able to save them. Why do you know that? Because he saved me. He saved you. That's not any less of a miracle than your friend or coworker or neighbor that you're thinking of right now. That's like, there's no chance I could see him coming to church. Hey, uh, you're here. He can save you. He can save anybody. And we got plenty of people in the Bible, by the way, with crazy backgrounds that met the Lord. And because we have comfort and certainty, we should have courage. We got nothing to fear or lose in sharing the gospel. For reasons unknown to me, God in his great mercy and sovereignty decided that he is going to accomplish his mission through you and me. And if we don't do it, he's going to find someone else. I really wish a lot of the times that he wouldn't use us because it just seemed like it'd be easier if he would go and get someone or just make it happen. But instead, he's like, no, I've not only ordained the, ordained the ends, I've also ordained the means. And you are the means. The church is the one that I have chosen to accomplish the mission. So, man, let's just go do it. We have nothing to lose. It depends on us. It's going to happen for sure. It happens through sharing the gospel. So just go share the gospel. And let's see what happens. And at the end of the day, we have confidence. Confidence in who we know. We don't know who will be saved, but we know the heart of the one who saves. Like when all this stuff gets weird and crazy and you're just like, I don't know how to reconcile this. We know the heart of our God. That he is good, that he is righteous, and he has called us to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that everyone has a chance to respond. That's his heart. We don't need to worry about all the other stuff up here. We know that, I think, to give us comfort and confidence and courage and certainty, and then we go do the mission. I would say this. If any understanding of this doctrine doesn't lead to these things, it's wrong and useless. It doesn't make any sense. Read the Bible. I don't know how you would live any other way than out of these things. This is not the only things that they create in us, but there are four things that absolutely should be present in our lives, if it's true. I think of the Apostle Paul. Paul is considered to be like the greatest theologian of our time. He wrote most of the New Testament, all of his letters to the church. In fact, most of his writings are where a lot of people get a lot of this doctrine from because he talks about it explicitly. And so he's considered like this great theologian guy. He's also the greatest missionary that we've ever seen in our lives outside of Jesus, who had a burning passion and desire for the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. Like no one could stop Paul from taking the gospel somewhere. He was going to die doing it. He believed this passionately, and he also thought, so let's go tell people about him. So somehow we got to reconcile those two things together that that's what happens. Some people will take this, and they think, well, I'll just sit on my hands now. It's like, 
How are you going to read the Bible and see that? How are you going to read Paul and see that? That's not at all what we've been called to do. Instead, it should create in us a fire and an excitement to go. Really, I wouldn't focus too much on that part of the parable because it comes at the end. What I love about that is that Pastor Christian, when he taught on this, he said one of the things, a comforting truth is that this kind of doctrine makes sense in hindsight rather than looking forward. Like you can't really make sense of it looking backward or looking forward, but you can't backward, which is why I love Jesus put it at the very end. He's just, I want you to know, by the way, this is going to happen. Like I got this. The sovereignty thing of me, we got this. The change of plans was always the plan because I was going to save my people, not just the Israelites, but the nations. So then what should we worry about? What should be our response to all these things that we've learned about today? And that's in our final scene, our only response. Our only response is going to be found in these last few verses. Jesus gets on this parable. The Pharisees are upset. So they go and they lay plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him this time with the Herodians, a public or a, a, a group that was a political group trying to further their own agenda in the Roman Empire. They don't usually get along, but Jesus does a really good job at uniting haters. He says, teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax of Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a Daenerys. He asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. This is just a really easy way to summarize what I think Jesus is trying to get to in the parable. The lesson, what he's calling us to. Really, at the end of the day, the question they were approaching with about this tax was this question, who should we be loyal to? Should we be loyal to Caesar, pay him his money, continue to be burdened by it? Should we reject it? Should we live and follow you? Should we, should we follow our own selves? Who, who should we be loyal to, Jesus? You don't care about people. Like, you don't care about opinions. You'll just say whatever is true. Who should we be loyal to? And Jesus' reasoning is this. Give back to Caesar what looks like Caesar and give back to God what looks like God. You say, why did he say it that way? The, the Daenerys makes sense, but like, what, what is God's then? The Herodians, I have no idea what they thought in this moment because I'm pretty sure they didn't know or read the Bible. But the Pharisees and their followers, I have a hunch, were floored because they knew their Bible. And they knew that in Genesis 1:26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So Jesus says, yeah, the coin, it's got his face on it. You give it to him. And while you're at it, whatever has God's face on it, give it back to him. If Jesus is king of our lives, if we have his image on us, then our only appropriate response is to give back our lives to him. He gives an invitation. It really should be an expectation. But he's a king that invites us in and lets us decide. But we are rightfully his. And again, it's not just an obligation. It's a chance of a lifetime to know him, to follow him, to be in this kingdom, to come to this wedding banquet. And that is the decision that we have today. Our decision is we have two choices, to ignore and reject this invitation like the Jewish leaders, to focus on our own kingdom, to pursue our other things, or to respond and surrender to him. Which one is it going to be? We always end our service today, um, these weeks, by having a time of reflection. 
We have three questions for you just to kind of process through the things that we've talked about. And so we're going to give you some time, a minute each with each slide. I'm going to back away. You'll sit there. And we just want this to be a conversation piece between you and the Lord, to read it, to respond to it, and let a prayer be birthed out of it. And if you're someone that none of the questions landed with you, man, just take this time and ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? What's my next step? What's my next move? What am I missing? What do you have for me? So let me pray for us, and then we'll have a time of reflection. Lord, we pray right now this time that you would speak to us. God, use these questions, use what we have heard today to prompt our hearts, Lord, to help us to give back to what is God's joyfully, God. Not under compulsion, but realizing that it truly is the greatest invitation of our life, that it is the best thing we can do for ourselves is to surrender to you. So be with us in this moment. Love you, love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.